Well, we are in Romans chapter 9, and we're going to look at verses 30 through 33. Romans 9, 30 through 33 this morning. I'll read those verses, and you can open up your copy of God's Word. We're going to spend most of our time in Romans 9, but we'll look around in some of the other passages in, in Romans as well. So open up your Bible. So Romans chapter 9, verse 30. God's Word says, Well, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Well, it's no secret that starting in the book of Genesis, the main characters of God's unfolding story are mostly Jews, descended from Abraham. The Jews had been described as God's chosen people, as the children of promise, as even the people of God. And yet in the New Testament, something unusual or even incredible happens. God's focus shifts to include Gentiles, most of us in this room. In fact, the New Testament is written at a time when the church is transitioning from what most people saw as a Jewish sect to an empire-wide religion. Perhaps there's no better picture of this transition than the church in Rome. See, the church in Rome was one of the oldest churches. It was established by Jews uh, who had converted to Christianity shortly after Jesus ascended into heaven. And for decades, the church was primarily Jewish, and they met in Jewish synagogues that they converted to Christian churches. But you see, all was not calm in the Jewish sector of the capital city of Rome. Many Jews hated Jewish Christians taking over their synagogues, as you can imagine. And many Jews rejected Jesus as Messiah. And things got so bad in the city of Rome that Emperor Claudius got word of the constant fighting in the Jewish quarters over someone called Christus. And so he decided to banish all Jews from Rome in A.D. 49. And instantaneously, what was once a predominantly Jewish church in Rome became a Gentile church. And so Gentiles take over the churches, and the church grows dramatically without the Jews bickering. Paul writes Romans about eight to nine years after the Jews were forced to leave Rome, and some of the Jews have begun to come back to the city. And you can imagine former Jewish Christian leaders expect to come back and and pick up where they left off, but their old churches start to feel very, very different. They feel very Gentile, simply by the numbers. No one denies that by the time the final words of Scripture are penned by the Apostle John, the church was going to be majority Gentile. Because God was saving men and women from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and the majority of the world is, frankly, Gentile. 
And now for 2,000 years, God has been drawing the nations to himself through the power of the gospel message. Now, Jews that rejected Jesus as Messiah and remained openly hostile to Christians seem to fall into a couple of different pitfalls. And in our passage this morning, Paul is going to focus on two ways that you can fail to be right with God. Two ways that you can be failed to be right with God. And these are very simple. I'll give them to you up front. It's legalism and the fear of man. There are two ways that even us today can fail to be right with God, and that is legalism and the fear of man. Now, of course, there's several reasons why first century Jews not only rejected Christianity, but were openly hostile. Remember in Rome, many of the earliest churches were converted synagogues, and to make matters worse, Jewish Christians worshipped right next to the pork-stained hands of Gentile believers. There's plenty of popular-level popular hatred that's going on here. But Paul wants us to get theological in this text. He wants us to understand why it is that many Jews fail to be right with God. Why it is that many Jews reject Jesus as their Messiah. And it's not just about buildings and money and prejudice. It's because the salvation of the world to open up the gospel message to Gentiles was all part of God's plan. And Romans 9 has already made that clear. Paul looks to Israel's history to show us that ultimately God chooses whomever God chooses to accomplish God's plans long before anyone was born. Look back at Romans 9, verse 11. He looks in Israel's past and he says, you know, you might think that man is able to determine his or her, her own path and destinies in life, but he says this, Romans 9, verse 11. Though they were not yet born, speaking of Jacob and Esau, twins, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election, of God's choosing, might continue, not because of works, not because of the works of, of men or women, but because of God who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And that does sound unfair to our ears. And so Paul continues and asks the question that we all ask in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Oh, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God's trying to say, listen, I'm in charge here. And so he says, verse 18, so then God has mercy on whomever he wills. And he even hardens whomever he wills. And if in God's sovereign plan to save some from every tongue and tribe and from every nation, from all the Gentiles, he had to harden some of the Jews, then that is God's right as the creator. And who are we to doubt the plans and purposes of God? Will a pot say to the potter and complain, why did you make me like this? So Paul makes that point, verse 20. He says, but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? 
Will what is molded say to its molder? Oh, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? You see, God has called some Jews, and at this point, many more Gentiles, because that is God's plan. Ultimately, it fulfills Old Testament prophecy too. Look at verse 25. As Hosea says, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. But in the final verses of chapter 9, Paul shifts the focus off the sovereignty of God and onto the specific failures of men. He shows us, humanly speaking, what keeps us from getting right with God. So yes, ultimately, God is sovereign. But let me be clear, these aren't just Jewish issues that these unbelievers have. These are common issues that keep each of us from being right with God. So the first way you can fail to be right with God is legalism. And that's doing right without faith. The first way you can be failed to be right with God is legalism, doing right without faith. When you talk with people about eternal life and ask why should God let you into heaven, have you guys ever done that? If you're having a conversation with an unbeliever or even someone that you'd like to know and, and get to know what their thoughts are, you should ask them, you know, why do you think God should let you into heaven? And perhaps the most common answer that I hear, especially if someone isn't a Christian, the answer is basically this. I'll get into heaven because I'm a pretty good person. I try to be good. I try to do good. I try to be kind always. I even put yard signs out in my yard to tell everyone how kind and good I am. Because they want everyone to know they're pretty good people. And they've embraced the morals that society says is great. And do you know the reason we are concerned with being good? God put that desire in every single heart. A, a desire to do good because deep down everyone knows I need to be good to get to God. I need to be good to get to God. Turn to Romans chapter 2. And see, in this chapter, Paul tells us that God actually wired us to have a conscience that tries to do good, even if we don't know God's law. Look at Romans 2, verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. His point is very simple. Everyone has a conscience. Everyone tries to differentiate between good and evil, and that's because God created us as moral creatures who want to be seen as good people. 
And so if we have this sense of morality within, if we want to be seen as good before others, then won't God look at our goodness and say, you know what? Ah, oh, they're just pretty good people. I think I'm going to let them into heaven. And if that's the case, then we need to ask the question, why do you need righteousness? Why do you need righteousness? See, if you can be good enough, if God looks at us and sees mostly pretty good people who are trying to be kind to others, then, then why does the Bible talk about needing righteousness, needing to be made right with God? See, ultimately, it's because God looks at us and measures us according to his standard, and God's standard is always the same. It's perfect. Jesus tells the masses to get his point across in Matthew 5, 48, and says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But of course, no one's perfect, and so God's verdict when he looks at humanity is absolutely clear. Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 10. Romans 3, verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And skip down to verse 24. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. No human being will be declared right in God's sight through goodness alone. So, beloved, since God is absolutely perfect and holy and good, and since he requires us to be absolutely perfect and holy and good, to be declared perfect or right and holy in his eyes, then our greatest need that can never be attained by our own goodness is to be right with God. To be declared perfect, holy, and good before God. That is our greatest need. And so to answer our question, why do we need righteousness? It's because trying really, really hard to be a good person is impossible. You're always going to come up short. So go to Romans 9, verse 31 in our text. Romans 9, verse 31. Why do so many Jews fail to be right with God? Because they tried to do it through legalism. They tried to do it by keeping their laws, by conforming their lives to society's codes of conduct, and that alone never saves anybody. And so Paul tells us many Jews had the same problem of legalism. Verse 31, read with me. Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. And perhaps we can excuse the Jews because the Old Testament law came directly from God. And if any moral code could lead to eternal life, could lead to being right with God, it was going to be God's law. But as we know from Galatians 3, 23 and 24, God's law was our schoolmaster. It was designed to be a teacher. It was designed to help us to realize we are completely unable to earn or to merit God's forgiveness. 
we're completely unable to be good. No amount of virtue signaling gets us there. Because Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or as nine, chapter 9, verse 31 says, They did not succeed in reaching the law. But that leads us to our next question at the beginning of verse 32. Why? Why? Why didn't they succeed in reaching the law? Why is doing right insufficient? So our next question, why is doing right insufficient? Why is it insufficient to try really hard at being good? Why is it insufficient to do the best you can? Because perfection is unattainable. And Israel attempted to obey without trusting that God had to cover their sins and failures, that God had to forgive and declare them right. The law was designed to simply point them to the fact that they couldn't measure up to God, that they needed God as their Savior. The whole law is designed to lead them to trust in Christ and Christ alone, not their own goodness. Look at verse 32. Why is doing right insufficient? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. As if all they had to do to be right with God was to work really, really hard at being good people. They didn't pursue the law. They didn't aim to obey God while trusting in him to cover their sins and their shortcomings. They certainly didn't understand their need for a savior. They thought they could be good enough according to their own standards because many thought they could be, uh, they could get to a point where they didn't sin anymore or that God would look down on them and say, wow, you know what? They are pretty good people. I mean, there are some Christian groups who hold the same idea that somehow you'll be able to get to a point in life where you will no longer sin. All based on our own efforts. Not trusting that even as you follow God, you always need God's forgiveness. You always need God's substitute, sacrifice for sins. See, the Jews needed to understand that they needed a suffering Messiah who died in their place, who bore the wrath reserved for me. And so why is doing right insufficient to make us right with God? Because we can't be perfect. And if we try to work our way to heaven, we lack faith. We don't believe that we need Christ as we should. Instead, what we really need is to be declared righteous. We need to be justified in God's sight. We need a righteousness that comes from God and is credited to our account, since nothing unholy can get into God's presence. So if nothing unholy can get into God's presence, we need an alien holiness or an alien righteousness, some holiness outside of ourselves. We need to be declared holy. And so we ask another question. How does faith declare you right? How does faith declare you right? Especially when we're told that Gentiles, those who historically were not children of the promise, those who didn't know God's law, have somehow become heirs with Christ, have, have been chosen by God to be his people. How are we 
declared right through faith. And so far, Paul is clear that God chooses to have mercy on whomever he desires. And from our perspective, we need to also understand every Christian has to respond to God with faith. So after noting the incredible work of God to save whomever he wishes, Paul asks this question, verse 30, what shall we say then? He's essentially begging the question, do we just kind of let go and God's going to save us when he wants to and it doesn't matter how we respond, we just kind of, it'll magically happen? He said, what shall we say to these things of God's sovereignty, of God choosing to save those whom he chooses? What do we say to the shift from Jew to Gentile in God's work? His answer is very clear, verse 30. The Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it. Now, hold up. You might, you might tell me, I thought you said all people try to do good. But here it says the Gentiles, what? Do not pursue righteousness. So it is true that all of us try and do good, but we're talking about here is contrasting Jews and Gentiles. Jews are pursuing the righteous law. Gentiles don't even have the law of God, and so they cannot pursue the same level of righteousness that Jews could. He's just making a contrast. This law was supposed to teach the Jews that they were to uh, see that they were unrighteous. They couldn't attain to God's law. But the Gentiles, they, they didn't even try to attain to God's law because they didn't have God's law. And so he says very clearly, Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it. And how do they do it? They've done this, they've attained this righteousness by faith. They've attained this righteousness by faith. And that last phrase has been a favorite of Paul in Romans. Righteousness or goodness or justification before God doesn't come from ourselves. It comes because we trust in Christ. To make that clear, go back to Romans chapter 3. Our faith isn't just believing that God will overlook bad things that we've done. Our faith is specifically in a person, specifically in the work of Jesus Christ. Look at Romans 3 verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe. You see that? God's righteousness, God's declaring us right, God's ability to get us right into his presence, that comes or is manifested apart from the law. The law and the prophets, they, they tell us about it. But being right with God happens through faith in Jesus Christ. And to reiterate, he says at the end of verse 22, for all who believe. He makes it very clear. It's faith in Jesus Christ, and it's for all who believe in Jesus, who then are credited or declared to be righteous before God. We are those, Christians are those, who realize what Jesus did. He died in our place as a substitute. Look at verse 25. It says, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That word propitiation simply means a payment. 
You see, Jesus, as he hung on the cross, suffered the wrath of God for sins. And as he sat on that cross, suffering and enduring the punishment that was reserved for us, God then took out his wrath for us on his son. And Jesus then rising from the dead in, on the third day shows that he has conquered sin and death. And by conquering sin and death, then he allows us to have a chance to be declared righteous. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 is very clear. God made him who knew no sin to be counted as sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God, so that we might be declared to be right. Listen, we all need righteousness, and the death of Christ was essential to that substitute that had to happen in order for us to be right with God. Legalism is simply trusting that you can do enough to make God happy with you. Christianity is trusting that you can't do enough and that Christ has done it all for you. Paul's very clear. When we believe in Jesus, God credits us with his righteousness. Turn to Romans 4, verse 22. Speaking of Abraham's faith, he says, that is why his faith was counted or credited to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted or credited to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted or credited to us who believe in him, who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised up for our justification. And so the solution to being natural enemies of God, unable to be good enough, is to trust in Christ that he was delivered up, that he was crushed for our sins and then raised up so that we could be declared right before God. And so Paul concludes in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified or declared right by faith, faith in Jesus, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our third question, how does faith declare you right? Faith declares us righteous because it's faith alone that reflects our trust in Christ alone to make us right with God. And Jew and Gentile alike can learn to trust in the work of Christ. But there's another vital question that we need to ask. What is saving faith? What is saving faith? James 2.19 reminds us that even demons believe and they shudder. So there is such a thing as non-saving faith. A demon-like faith that doesn't actually save anybody. And there are two typical shortcomings in faith or misunderstandings of faith. Well, first is that you don't know who you should believe in. Perhaps you grew up Buddhist like some of our family members did. And you grew up with shrines to your grandparents. And let's say you believe that your altars in your house to your deceased family members are important to honor them. 
and you have faith that the food that you set out to them helps them in their afterlife. I have seen this in family members' homes. But do these sincere beliefs, the sincere faith that this somehow helps, does that sincere faith make us right with God? Well, they cannot because faith in something that is not true is not going to help you in any meaningful way. But there are also people who grew up in America and claim some sort of Christianity, and they firmly believe that Jesus died to give them good health, or maybe that God, Jesus died to give them a prosperous lifestyle. And they think, you know what? As long as I believe in Jesus, then everything will go really well in this life. And if things aren't going well, it's because I'm not believing in Jesus enough. But no matter how much positive thinking or faith that you exhibit, you cannot will the good that you want in this life because God alone gives and he takes away. The same hand gives and he takes away at his time and in his ways. And so the first typical shortcoming of our faith is is we have this wrong thinking about God about who he is and what it means to be right with him or about how we should worship him. So you have to worship God in truth. But a second shortcoming of faith is that you don't trust that Jesus is king or Lord of your life. This is really what's going on in the demons here. Demons firmly believe that Jesus is God. They firmly believe that Jesus is king and that he died for the sins of humanity, yet they do not have any desire to serve him as Lord. On the other hand, every Christian must die to self and aim to worship and glorify Christ. That's what it means to believe. It means to serve Christ as Lord. To to clarify this, go to Romans 10, verse 9, the very next chapter, Romans 10, verse 9. Paul writes very clearly here, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And this idea that Jesus is Lord or that Jesus is King is the key here, right? You believe that Jesus died for our sins and you believe that he is Lord and King of all. You see, every Christian must be willing to submit to King Jesus as Lord of their lives. It's going to affect then how you live. To put this in perspective, I'm going to tell you a a short story of a couple of men. A couple of men here were, were believing and reading a number of books that pointed to prophecies that were about to be fulfilled in the United States of America that would lead to the downfall of America. And they would kind of point to some vague passages in Isaiah and Jeremiah, and they would look at these passages and say, see, America is there, and America is going to fall and fail in the next couple of years. And these two men were reading these books and, and seeing the... Um, Uh, fulfillment of prophecy in their minds in the current events of the day. And one of the men was so convinced that America's destruction was imminent that he went and bought land in Belize. You don't know Belize? It's one of the few Central American nations where they actually speak English. And so he's like, you know what? I'm going to go down to Belize, and I bought a big track of land so that when it gets really bad in America, I can jet out and go down there. The other man didn't really 
you know, he said he believed it, but but he didn't go and sell all he had and buy land in Belize. So, so, so the question is, which of these two men fully and truly believed that America was about to be destroyed? The one who sold everything and went to, to buy land in Belize or the one who just was like, yeah, you know what? I'll bide my time. Right? Clearly the one who sold everything went and bought land in Belize. So the question for us is, consider your life. First of all, don't look for prophecies in the pages of the newspapers and don't buy those books, okay? Second of all, consider your life. Do you act like you believe that Jesus is your king? Do you live with your whole life to serve him? Do you prioritize reading God's word, praying, going to church, evangelism, family worship? Do you prioritize discipling others? See, the priorities of your life reveal how much you believe that Christ is Lord. And saving faith is always a repentant faith. It is always a faith that turns and trusts in Jesus alone for your salvation. And legalism? Legalism is living like you can be good enough in your own way without total dependence on Christ. You can be very religious and legalistic, and you can be completely atheistic and legalistic. Because you believe that you can pave your own path. You can like Jesus and just be like the world. You can even adopt what the world says is moral and kind and good, even if it contradicts God's word. You see, it isn't just Jews who struggle with legalism. There are a lot of people calling themselves Christians who ignore what God tells them to do, who rather than submit their lives to Christ, live like they are still king and queens of their own little life, and simply try to live good lives in their own power and according to their own law. That's a type of legalism. And legalism keeps us separated from God. But that isn't the only roadblock to saving faith, to reconciliation with God. When Paul says that legalism is a snare, and so too is, number two here, the fear of man. The fear of man. Specifically, when it causes you to be uncomfortable with Jesus. In many myths and movies, a common superpower of the weaker villain is the ability to shapeshift. You guys are familiar with those characters in movies or within uh, parables or, or stories. It isn't often the trait of the, of the powerful villain or the one who can just smash through anything he or she wants. It's a, it's a trait of the tricksters like, like Loki or, or Ursula and the Little Mermaid, right? They often have some serious flaw that is overcome by their ability to become whatever they want to be. Well, for way too many people, Jesus is the ultimate shape shifter. But in reverse. He doesn't become whoever he wants to be. Jesus is made into whatever image people want him to be. Some will go so far as to say things like, well, my Jesus would never... Or, well, my Jesus is always fill in the blank. For way too many, Jesus becomes whoever they imagine him to be. And the actual Jesus of the Bible remains veiled by a Jesus of their own making. 
And when actually confronted with the words of Jesus compared to the shape-shifted Jesus, people get offended and people get uncomfortable with the real Jesus that is found in the pages of Scripture. That's why over half of the confessing Christians surveyed in the State of Theology survey, have you guys seen that online? The State of Theology, not now, but afterwards, go look that up. State of Theology survey, it's very interesting. Um, Half of the confessing Christians surveyed said, the Bible like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. Really? Half of confessing Christians believe the Bible is not literally true and contains myths. In other words, the Bible may give us an idea of who Jesus is, but he certainly can be shape-shifted into whoever they want him to be. And that's because the more we get to know the Jesus of the Bible, the more he becomes a stumbling block. Look at chapter 9, verse 32 of Romans. Why is doing right insufficient to get us to God? Because the Jews did not pursue the law by faith, but as if it were based on works. They were legalists. Therefore, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. And here's our second point. They were uncomfortable with Jesus. You see, this concept of a stumbling stone is a, is a stone that was used and designed to demarcate a, a path to help identify the edge or the correct path to keep you from straying off of the path. And if you didn't know better, that stone could be a nuisance to you, especially if you wanted to go off of the right path. And that's exactly what Jesus was prophesied to be. Verse 33, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. What's sad is, many Jews did not believe in him, but simply stumbled. That's because Jesus was offensive to the Jews. When he came, he didn't fit their ideas of a Messiah. He didn't come in the form that they wanted. He came in the form of a a lowly servant. But the rejection of Jesus by the Jews was exactly what had to happen for the gospel to extend to the Gentiles. In fact, it is what God planned to take place. Listen to how Peter quotes the same verses from Isaiah. 1 Peter 1, uh, sorry, 1 Peter 2, 6 through 8 says, As it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. See the connection there, right? So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and it's a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And here's what Peter says. They stumble, those who reject Jesus stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. God had destined even the rejection of Jesus by his chosen people to bring about his good plans for the nations. Now, to see how this happened in real time, I want you to go back to some of the gospel accounts. So I want you to go back to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. We're going to see how the Jews saw Jesus as a stumbling stone as we close out our time together. Go to John chapter 12. You see, we know that for many who saw Jesus do miracles, 
who heard Jesus teach and claimed to be God, many of the Jewish eyewitnesses believed what they were seeing. I mean, they couldn't doubt the, the power that Jesus had. They couldn't doubt that he spoke with such authority. But what kept them from turning and trusting in Jesus was simply that they feared others more than they feared God. So look at John chapter 12, verse 42. John 12, verse 42. He says, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, that is, believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Here's the clincher here. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You see, the fear of man has caused so many to reject Christ as their Lord and Savior. People are afraid what others will think of them because they believe in the claims that Jesus made. Perhaps you come from a culture where the cultural pressures to confess Christ would be immense against you. I certainly have talked to people like that. Maybe it's um, uh, some Hindu cultures, some, some Muslim cultures, and some, uh, some, some Buddhist cultures, some... Uh, Atheistic cultures in America. I, I've talked to people who, who, who believe these things to be true, but because the pressures of their family would be so much that they would be potentially disowned, they say, you know what? I can't become a Christian. It's not worth it. Perhaps you're... American and the idea of Jesus was the Jesus your mama taught you. And then you get confronted with the idea of Jesus from the scriptures and you realize that the Jesus your mama taught you isn't the Jesus of the Bible. And to make a statement that rejects the Jesus your mama taught you essentially would be to condemn your mama's ideas and possibly your mama and your family. You know, the pressure to do that is immense, is it not? Perhaps you like to think of yourself as keeping up with the times and staying on the right side of history, and maybe you embrace a Jesus who would never call homosexuality a sin, or who would never simply hug a, uh, or never condemn a trans man, would simply just hug a trans man, embracing her as a biological mistake. And the fear of man in these cases leads people to stumble over the reality of who Jesus was. I think it's helpful for us to remember some of the most common reasons why Jesus is so offensive, even to us today. You see, many are offended first with Jesus' display of deity, with his display of deity. You're in John 12. Go to, go to the end of John chapter 8. Here's another state of theology um, statistic again. The state of theology survey shows us that 68% of those who claim to be Christian think that Jesus is the first and greatest being that was created by God. And yet, of course, if you know anything about Jesus, you know that he is God and never was created. He created everything. 64% of confessing Christians say that they, it's likely that Jesus was a great teacher, 
but not God. Really. And see, essential to Christianity is clarity that Jesus is God. He is eternally God the Son, the uncreated one, who took on flesh in what we see at Jesus of Nazareth, but he is nonetheless is eternally God. And it's Jesus' bold claims to be God that so often got him into trouble. And you're at the end of John 8, and we see one of the most troubling times. Jesus said to them, John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, to the crowds and to the leaders especially, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. What is he saying there? Well, he's saying before Abraham existed, I existed. So he's saying then that I am older than Abraham, and yet they could see that he's 30 years old, right? So that didn't compute in their mind. But more importantly, he said, I am. What was the name that God gave to Moses? He says, tell him that I am sent you, the self-existent one, the one who has no beginning, who has no end. To be self-existent is to be God, for we are all created beings. And so Jesus says before Abraham was, I am. What'd they do? Verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. A miraculous hiding, I assume. And so we see very clearly people do not like the fact that Jesus claims to be God. Early on in his ministry in Mark chapter 2, Jesus heals a lame man. But before he actually heals this lame man, he says, you know what? I forgive your sins. And then he looks around to the religious leaders and he knows that they're grumbling, complaining in their hearts. He says, you know what? I hear what you're doing in your hearts. First of all, they're like, whoa, you can hear what I'm doing in my heart? And then he looks at them and he says these words in verse 10, Mark 2.10, so that you may know that I, the Son of Man, have authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately and picked up his bed and went out before them all. What do you think Jesus was trying to do? He's trying to say, I have a power and authority to forgive sins because guess what? I'm God. If you can't get that through your heads, Jesus is making it crystal clear. Just read the scriptures, okay? Again and again, Jesus claimed to be God and to be offended at this or, or to deny it or to say, you know what, he's a, just a created being or, or to believe, uh, believe that he's you know, somehow a great teacher but not actually God is to believe in a make-believe Jesus. And yet many are offended by the things that Jesus says. And so for the fear of man, they reject the Jesus of the scriptures. So others are offended with Jesus Specifically, with his claims on your life. With his claim on your life. You see, Jesus calls us not to some casual interest in him, but to whole life commitment. The great commission for all Christians to go out and make disciples, that means to go out and make learners and followers of Jesus. Not to go out and make superficial conversions, right? Not to go out and say, get a bunch of people together who like Jesus, however they want, imagine him to be. 
Go out and make people who learn about Jesus, who are committed to following Jesus, and are faithful to follow Jesus with their whole lives. A rich man came to Jesus expecting he could get to heaven by doing enough good things, and Jesus then said, give up what you most want and follow me. And the rich man goes away sad because he wouldn't live for Christ above all else. At another time, go, you're in John 8, go to John 8, verse 12. Look at what Jesus said. John 8, verse 12. He spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You want to walk in light. I think everyone wants to walk in light. I think everyone wants to do good and be good and be seen as good, like we talked about earlier. The only way that happens is when you walk with Christ. Walking with Christ day in and day out is what it means to believe that he has a claim on your life, to believe that he is God, to believe that he died, was buried, and rose again for your sins as a substitute sacrifice. And yet many fail to be right with God because they are uncomfortable with this whole life commitment that Jesus calls. Finally, many are offended also with his exclusivity, with Jesus' exclusivity. Again, according to the State of Theology survey, 78% of confessing Christians could say, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 78% of confessing Christians think that God accepts the worship of all religions. But Jesus is very clear. There is one true God, and all those who worship him, worship him in spirit and in truth. Meaning that Christians must wholeheartedly believe and embrace the truth of who God is and how he planned for us to be right with him through Christ alone. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus is so clear, isn't he? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. 1 Timothy 2, 5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. There are no alternative paths to God. There is no room for well-meaning people who do the best they can with their faith tradition. Only if you trust in Jesus can you be made right with God. Beloved, that is an offensive message to many people because it means that many very sincere people will go to hell if they don't come to Jesus. And the fear of man motivates so many people to turn Jesus into somebody that he isn't. Pretending that he doesn't say hard sayings like this. And it means that some who even claim to be Christian are not. Because they believe a God of their own making. Because they fear man and they choose to believe in a pretend Jesus more than taking God at his word. And yet it's ironic, isn't it? Because in the name of love and kindness, some are willing to shape-shift Jesus 
but by far the most loving thing that we can do is to point people to the true Jesus of the Bible because it's in him alone that anybody can be saved. And so as Christians, we don't teach people to obey a set of rules and rituals that somehow earn God's grace like the Roman Catholic Church would do. We do not teach them that they can make Jesus into whomever they want him to be. We have to show them the only way to be right with God is the only way to satisfy that longing of your heart to be good, to be right before God. It comes when you recognize yourself as a sinner before a holy God and you turn away from trying to be good enough on your own. You turn away from pretending that Jesus is some guy who you made up and you believe in the Jesus of the Bible and you trust that his sacrifice was sufficient for your sins on the cross. That God looks then at his crucified son instead of our sin and welcomes us home into his eternal family. There might even be some in this room who are not right with God. And I want to encourage you, today is a day when you can reject legalism, trying to be good by being good enough, when you can reject the fear of man and you can come to Jesus as we've seen him to be in the scriptures. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much that we have evidences of, of the failures of others in the past, not because it's encouraging to see failure, but because it helps us to recognize how we might be tempted to fail ourselves, how we might be tempted to reject your gospel message. Help us, Lord, to be faithful, to follow you, to be faithful to know who you are as you've shown us who you are in your word, to be faithful to worship you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to be faithful when we fail, and we will fail, to turn to you and ask for forgiveness, recognizing that your wrath for that sin that we just committed, even that we just committed this morning, is poured out on Christ in our place. And we have a marvelous and wonderful and awesome Savior. Help us, Lord, to live a life that is committed to following and worshiping and serving you. In Jesus' name, amen.